The medal, which was struck in 1832, was not originally called, nor was it meant to be, a miraculous medal. It was called the Medal of the Immaculate Conception. Our Lady had promised abundant graces, and she kept her promise more than anyone could have imagined in their wildest dreams. Reports by wearers of the new medal flooded the little convent of the Sisters of Charity on the Rue de Bac. Physical cures, conversions, miracles of every sort were reported. The Archbishop of Paris, Archbishop de Coulin, who had authorized the medal to be struck, was one of the first to experience a miracle from Our Lady as a result of the use of her special medal. An excommunicated archbishop who had sided with Napoleon Bonaparte against the Vatican had become very heartened against Mother Church. Archbishop de Quellen went to visit him on his deathbed. The dying archbishop will not relent in his anger against the Church. But as Archbishop de Quellen was about to leave, his former colleague called him back into the room and asked for reconciliation. He was given the last rites of the church and died the next day in peace. The conversion of Ratisbon, the most famous as well as dramatic account of a miracle attributed to Our Lady's intercession through the miraculous medal, is that of Alphonse Ratisbon. He was an Austrian Jew, very well loved in material possessions, a man of the world. He harbored a great hatred for Catholics and all things pertaining to the Catholic Church. This was due in part to the conversion to, of his older brother, George, to Catholicism. To make matters worse, he also became a priest. Alphonse never forgave his older brother, but blamed the Church for bewitching the men. In retrospect, it becomes so obvious that the bizarre incidents leading up to the dramatic instance of Ratisbon's conversion could not possibly have been coincidence. A master plan was launched to bring this angry man to the bosom of Mary, from which he would never leave. Prior to his upcoming marriage to a Jewish girl in Austria, Ratisbon thought it would be nice to travel to Malta. Needless to say, he never arrived there. A succession of mishaps brought him to a city he vowed he would never visit, the center of Christianity, Rome. While in the ancient city, he did another thing which was completely out of character for him. He made the acquaintance of a newly converted Catholic, Baron Boussiers. During a raging argument with Boussiers, in which Stratisbon spewed his hate for the Catholic Church, Boussiers was able to get the Jew to wear the new medal to Mary from Paris as a dare. He was even able to convince Alphonse to write down the words to the memorari and repeat the prayer. Ratisbon accepted the challenge with outright mockery. He allowed the baron's daughter to put the medal around his neck. Our Lady then put a dying man, Comte de la Ferronne, in the path of Boussier. They met at a dinner party in Rome. Baron Boussier discussed Ratisbon with the Comte, who promised to pray the memorari for him at the Church of St. Mary Major. The Comte de la Ferronne went to the church and prayed 20 memoraries for the conversion of the angry Jew. After having prayed, he returned home and died the same day. Ratisbon wanted to leave Rome. He went to Baron Boussier's home to thank him for his courtesy, which was his custom, and to return the medal to him. Boussier, not wanting to lose Alphonse, asked him to accompany him to the Church of St. Andreas, where Boussier was to make funeral arrangements for, the, for Comte de la Ferronne. 
The fact that the Comte had prayed for Ratisbonne made him feel obligated to join his friend. While Baron Boussier made arrangements in the sacristy, Ratisbonne wandered about inside the church. He had a feeling he should leave. As he turned towards the front door, a huge black dog blocked his way. The animal was vicious, baring his fangs. Ratisbonne was frozen in his tracks. He couldn't move. Suddenly, the dog disappeared. Directly in his path at a side chapel, a brilliant light glowed. Ratisbonne looked up to see Mary standing there, above the altar, in the post of the miraculous medal which he still wore around his neck. He looked up at her. Her face was peaceful, but her eyes bored deep into his soul. He could not stand the brilliance of the light. He had to look away from her enchanting face, her captivating eyes. He looked at her hands, which, according to his own words, expressed all the secrets of the divine pity. She never said a word, but he understood all. The vision lasted but a few minutes, the effects a lifetime. When his friend emerged from the sacristy, he found Ratisbonne on his knees, sobbing. He insisted on being baptized immediately. The story spread all over Rome. In a matter of months, Alphonse Ratisbonne was baptized, received First Holy Communion, and was confirmed. He went on to become a priest, taking the name Marie Alphonse Ratisbonne. He joined his brother in Jerusalem to form the Daughters of Zion, whose ministry was to evangelize among the Jews. He tried to meet the sister who had been given the vision of the miraculous medal, but without success. Catherine's gift was hers, and Ratisbonne's experience was his own to cherish for the rest of his life. By 1836, millions of the medals had been distributed throughout the world. The unusual quality of the medal was that it was most effective in seemingly impossible situations. Cures of the hopelessly incurable, conversions of the worst enemies of the church were noted, as well as miracles of every kind. The original title of the medal was forgotten because everyone called it the Miraculous Medal. Eventually, the official name was changed to the Miraculous Medal, and a feast day was instituted by the Vatican in its honor. Catherine Labouret was transferred to a hospital for old people called Enghien on the outskirts of Paris. She spent the next 45 years taking care of the sick, as St. Vincent de Paul had predicted in her dream when she was 19 years old. She was completely inconspicuous, though many of her sister nuns suspected that it was she who had been given the gift of the vision of Mary. She cared for old sailors whose foul language and abusive behavior towards her was almost more than she could bear. Her life in the hospital was one of total submission to her vocation. She fought against her humanity to achieve as high a level of spirituality as possible. She suffered greatly. She experienced a spiritual dryness, which is common to all saints. She could not feel the presence of the Lord in her life. During this time, she had to rely on faith alone. Saint Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, referred to it as the dark night of the soul. Saint Teresa la Grande of Avila, the great mystic and doctor of the church, lived through 20 years of spiritual dryness. On her road to spiritual perfection, Catherine had to pay her dues, and she did. She never gave her secret away. Finally, she was ordered by her confessor to write down everything that had happened. 
She wrote of the events in the chapel first in 1841, then wrote again in 1856, and a last time in 1876, the year of her death. It was in these writings that Catherine revealed that Our Lady had not wanted the figure on the front of the medal that we see today. She had wanted the image which showed her holding the glove in her extended hands to be the front of the medal. This was not possible because of the difficulties the engravers would have in recreating the three-dimensional aspect of the image. Our Lady had asked for a statue to be made of the image she preferred, that which depicted her holding the world in her hands. It was not made. Catherine was furious on more than one occasion because of this. Towards the end of her life, she feared that Our Lady would be unhappy with her because she had not accomplished this. However, before she died, her mother superior had a statue built of the image which Our Lady had wanted for the medal. It stands in the chapel of the miraculous medal today. Catherine surrendered herself into the arms of Mary on December 31, 1876. Her mother superior wanted her to be interred in the chapel at Rulli, but was not able to figure out how it could be done. Through the intercession of Mary, she was shown the way, and Catherine was buried in Rulli, not in the chapel, but beneath it. On May 28, 1933, she was beatified in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. As part of the canonization process, the body of the saint had to be identified. In a solemn procession, her coffin was removed from the vault under the chapel at Rulli and brought to the mother house at Rue de Bac in Paris. In the presence of the Archbishop of Paris, civil officials, and various doctors, the coffin was opened. We have to envision our heavenly family gathered also in this room, including choirs of angels, with our beautiful Lady of the Miraculous Medal, St. Vincent de Paul and St. Catherine in the foreground. As the lid was removed, the choir of angels broke out in hymns of praise to the power of God, for what the humans beheld was the body of St. Catherine, which had been in the ground for 57 years, completely incorrupt. Our Lady had given her a gift reserved for her most special people, including St. Bernadette of Lourdes, and we're told Jacinta Martos of Fatima. Today, more than 110 years later, that body is more beautiful than when she was alive. It's as if our Lord Jesus honored Catherine by leaving us her body in this remarkable state. You have but to go to the Chapel of the Miraculous Medal on Rue de Bac in Paris, sandwiched in between those two department stores on the notorious left bank, St. Catherine Labore, canonized in 1947, is waiting for you to prove what a beautiful contradiction Mary gives us. This separation has a great deal of meaning to us. It was the first instance in modern times when the Mother of God visited us. There have been no mention of an apparition by Our Lady since 1531, when Our Lady of Guadalupe came to Juan Diego in Mexico. There were many messages given the people of God, the most important truth given to us in Paris in 1830 was the Immaculate Conception. There was a great need for the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary to enter in the, into the consciousness of the people. A radical heresy, pantheism, had taken hold of most of Europe. Pantheism claims that man is on a level with God, equal to him. God is not a being, but is manifested in all the forces of the universe. 
It began as a belief in 1705 when the term was coined by J. Toland in England. Originally, only the intelligentsia understood and accepted the heresy, but by the French Revolution, it had shifted down to the common men. They were led to believe and accept that because of the great strides being made by men as a result of the Industrial Revolution, they didn't need God anymore. Pantheism is a direct contradiction with the centuries-old belief of Catholics regarding the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Our belief that only Jesus and Mary were born without sin clashed with the new heresy of men being equal with God, which had a caused confusion and division. There was a need to make the truth clear to the faithful. Mary began her crusade for renewal of devotion to her Immaculate Conception on the Rue de Bac in Paris. She continued pressing the point home until Pope Pius IX officially proclaimed the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception on December 8, 1854. In the event that there were still any doubts in the minds of the faithful, she appeared to St. Bernadette Souvereau at Lourdes in 1858 and said the words, I am the Immaculate Conception. In 1846, the Immaculate Conception was declared patroness of the United States, and in 1913, the cornerstone was laid for the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. Sweet Mary has always loved us. She comes to us in times of trouble. She ignores the hostilities against her, but fights like a tiger to protect her son against attacks. France of the Middle Ages had a sincere love and devotion to Mary. Cathedrals in honor of her were built almost every year in the 12th century. We believe that her first apparition to us in the modern world in Paris and her subsequent apparitions in France at La Salette in 1846, Lourdes in 1858, and Pont Man in 1873 were strong attempts on her part to bring her beloved children of France the eldest daughter of the church, back to the fold. The battle goes on, but she shows no sign of weakening. She's up to it. She's dug her heels into the earth and promises not to give up on us as long as there's still time and even a handful of believers. We wonder, though, how many believers there are and just how much time is left. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply, with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.